I think it's not so much that um, that there's a one size fits all answer to this. I think it's a very individual thing. And I think, you know, if a dancer is considering starting full-time training, they really need to sit down with, with a health professional and with the teacher that's going to be taking them through that full-time training. And they need to understand everything that's on the table. And I'm probably a key example um, of someone who probably didn't progress to full-time training in a very um, sensible way. So I think I probably only danced for seven or eight hours a week the year before I moved to Brisbane and then started dancing 27 hours a week. To me as a physio, now I'd, I would not be advising that I do that. I'd say, no, Louise, like you need to be fleshing out your training. And even if you can't make more than eight ballet classes a week, you need to be doing something else. Welcome to the Balanced Ballerinas podcast. I'm Georgia Canning, qualified ballet teacher of adults and children, and I'm also a studio owner and founder of Balanced Ballerinas, amongst a few other things. I drop episodes of this podcast every second week, and I've been doing so for well over two years now. So if you're new, welcome. I am so glad that you have found this wonderful community fueled by a mutual love of ballet and healthy dancers. At the moment, um, obviously, I am in Australia and our states and territories keep locking down and opening up and locking down and opening up. And if you're like me, I mean, I'm one of the lucky ones in Queensland. We have only a few lockdowns every now and then. But if, you know, that's still exhausting. So if you're feeling all the feelings right now, I'm with you. Um, Try and focus on the positives. Try and just take every day as it comes when... I recorded the introduction for the last episode. I actually said, oh, hi, I'll be, you know, uh, it'll be Sunday, my birthday, and I'll be out having pancakes and champagne. And, well, that didn't happen. (laughs) We ended up being thrown into a snap lockdown the day before. And anyway, the podcast release, and you all thought I was having pancakes and champagne. But instead, I was actually just hanging out at home twiddling my thumbs, working out what to do for my birthday whilst I wasn't allowed to see anyone except for my partner and my dog. So (laughs) anyway, it is what it is, guys. So if you are feeling all the feelings right now, I just wanted to let you know that I'm feeling them too and we will get through this, I promise. So today's guest is Louise Drysdale. Louise grew up in country Lismore before heading to Brisbane's Queensland Dance School of Excellence, also known as QDSC. It's now known as the Academy for Queensland Ballet, to finish school in full-time dance training. What I love most, though, about Louise's story is that although she started ballet late, you know, 11 years old is considered late in the world of ballet, (laughs) she was smart enough to realise that This disadvantage in the professional world of ballet didn't rule her out completely in having a career within the industry. After her first pre-point assessment, Louise always gravitated towards a fascination with the body and physiotherapy and knew that if she entered that space, she wanted to sort of remain in the dance world and work with dancers. Louise being the product of excellent parenting, she kept her academic grades high, her contacts close and set out to complete her university studies and secure a dream role of working as a resident physiotherapist with Queensland Ballet whilst also building her own private practice, the Pre-Point Physio. It sounds like a clear path, but there were a few twists and turns along the way, which I'll leave up to Louise to tell. Now, I have many young students who are studying ballet because they want to be dance physiotherapists. They want to specialize in that area. And in fact, I'm often more excited, shh, don't tell anyone, (laughs) when students come to me with the game plan of wanting to work as a health professional in this space rather than the sole pursuit of becoming a professional ballerina. Not only does this goal highlight the importance of their education, but it really keeps them in school and it broadens their scope of career possibilities within this space. As we all know, and especially after COVID, jobs for professional dancers unfortunately are going to be few and far between and students need an education to fall back on if the plan of becoming a professional dancer doesn't quite work out or simply if they change their mind, which can also happen. 
happened to me. In this conversation, we cover Louise's personal journey from dancer to dance physiotherapist, and I'm sure it will inspire any young dancers listening to keep up their academic studies. This story highlights the importance of education in young dancers and the beautiful possibilities that really can await someone, anyone still wanting to be part of the ballet world if they decide that a career as a professional isn't for them. As always, I love to bring guests on the pod that are really passionate about looking at the dancer as a whole human being. Louise most certainly fits this bill and it was an absolute pleasure recording this conversation to share with our wonderful community. You can tell Louise just absolutely adores her job, keeping the company members, academy students and other young and adult students in tip-top shape to continue really just doing what they love and this really lights her up. The best place to find Louise and follow her work is probably on Instagram where you can find her at the Prepoint Physio and prepointphysio.com.au. And as always, you can find me at The Balanced Ballerina. Send me a message if you enjoy the episode, which I'm sure you will. I love hearing from you all. Really, I truly do and have received honestly some stunningly beautiful emails lately from balanced ballerinas all over the world they've truly made my day and keep me inspired to basically spread the balanced ballerinas love so have a wonderful week everyone i'll see you in another couple of weeks and enjoy my conversation with louise welcome to the balanced ballerinas podcast louise ah thank you for having me georgia i am a little bit sad because Tomorrow we were supposed to be sitting across the room from each other at the Mind Body Ballet event at Queensland Ballet. And it was going to be actually the first um, in-person live um, podcast recording for Balance Ballerinas. So that's a bit sad that it's got cancelled now because we're in lockdown. But I thought let's jump on and do a podcast interview anyway, because I'm sure I'll be getting you on again in the future when we can reschedule anyway. So <laughs> We got lots we can cover. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully we, hopefully we can make that happen again um, as part of the day. I think that would be really exciting. But yeah, let's let's see if we can keep the podcast spirit alive. Exactly. And I was actually going to have yourself and Tonya from the company together. And I think this way, I mean, the positive is that I get to explore your story, or you know, just have you on your own, all to myself. So let's do it. I found out that you actually only started dancing uh, at the age of 12. So I would love to hear what it was like starting later. To be truthful, I did start when I was about five or six. I can remember um, Ms. Rosemary Frances Skinner. She took um, some classes for um, the Clunes Primary School. Clunes is this tiny little town in New South Wales. I know um, where Clunes is. And she is. came to our school. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. So you have a bit of an idea where, where it all started then. So she came to our primary school hall and on, oh, I can't, you know, once a week we would all, you know, all of the kindergarten and year one children would go and, and do some lessons. And unfortunately she stopped running those lessons after a, a year or two. And I think my mum, my who was also working, was trying to get me to classes and it just, it didn't really work out in the end. So I dabbled in gymnastics unsuccessfully for a couple of years. And then, yeah, and then eventually I think I started some jazz classes back in Lismore, which is quite close to Clunes, another regional town in New South Wales. And then, again, that school closed down. So then I moved to another school and you had to do ballet to do jazz at the new school. Um, that was Karen Island Dance Centre, for those of you who know, <laughs> in Lismore. And, and so she was very patient with me and she, she said, look, I think, you know, obviously you've done some ballet before, you've got a bit of facility, let's see how we go. So I started doing um, some grade four RAD and some intermediate foundation at the same time. So um, following along, not really knowing what was going on in the class, but trying to pick up um, the vocabulary and build up a bit of a sense of, like a bit of background really quickly. Um, but I loved it and I, I never really thought that I would love ballet as much as I actually did but I think um, I actually grew to love that more than jazz and then it just it goes from there basically um, <laughs> so and then after that I I sort of aspired to go full-time there were quite a lot of talented dancers at at Karen's and um, 
and a lot of them were I think one of her students who was not that much older than me ended up dancing um, in Copenhagen at the Royal Danish Ballet so she was um, you know producing some really lovely students and I think she still continues to do so and um, I auditioned for what was uh, Queensland Dance School of Excellence so in 2007 I moved up to Brisbane uh, in grade 11 and flattered with another girl um, and attended I guess full-time training there and obviously now that's Queensland Ballet Academy and it's a bit of a full 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 circle because now I'm I'm back at the academy but I'm working as their physio now so yeah it's awesome and I I always say that I actually really love when my students go I really want to be a dance physio because I actually sometimes love that more than the ones that are like I want to be a professional dancer <laughs> because I'm like it is such an amazing career path and um, and it really keeps them on track with their academic studies so I would love to know did you always feel like you were going did you always know you wanted to be a physiotherapist hmm. I actually think the very first time I ever went to see a physio was for my pre-point assessment and it was a physio in a in a regional town not that close to Clunes, close to Lismore and um I don't think that musculo, so bones, joints, ligaments, I think she was used to working with older people. Um, and so she did a pretty good job considering, um, but I was really interested in why she was measuring certain things. And I was, you know, thinking about it for a little while. And as we left, my mum jokingly said, oh, maybe you should be a physiotherapist. Probably as she was paying the bill, thinking that it would earn, earn me good money. <laughs> um, and I sort of didn't even know what a physio was until that day. Um, and then I guess uh, I sort of put it on my list of options as a, as a teenager. Obviously, I knew I wanted to pursue ballet as well. So I thought having, having those two options would be, um, would be a good move, I suppose. So I always, because I, I could continue my academic studies, I had um, both of those, um, the dance and academia as options. And at the end of the day, I ended up choosing physiotherapy. Um, uh, I had the choice at the end of year 12 to move to Perth uh, to, to study at WAPA. Um, and that would have been not their contemporary program, but they used to have like a diploma of uh, diploma of fine arts or something like that. Uh, and I'm not sure what they have now. Um, or I could have, I stayed, stayed at UQ and pursued physio. So I ended up pursuing physio. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, I guess. I always knew that it was an option for me, which is kind of nice, um, but also very rare, you know, like it's not common, I don't think. And it's it's okay if, if teenagers don't know what they want to do as well. I think that's a very important point to make. <laughs> yeah, mm. I, I always say the same thing. I, I say to my students who are sort of finishing grade 11 and 12, like I ask them, you know, just to get the the juices flowing, what, what do you feel like you want to do after school? But I also then back that up with, don't worry if you have no idea <laughs> because I always use myself as an example that when I finished school, I had no ambition whatsoever to be in the dance world. And after uni and doing a PR degree, I ended up having my own studio and that was never the plan. And so, you know, a bit like you, it sort of comes full circle, but unlike you, I didn't really know what I wanted to do either. So um, yeah, to just not stress about that because it's, it all works out, doesn't it? <laughs> It all works out. It's absolutely. And I think it's, it's, it's more about the skills that you acquire along the way and whether that's at school in academia or playing team sport or, or in a ballet studio, you know, you acquire these skills and these ways of thinking and ways of learning. And I think that that's really in the end um, what gets you where you need to be. Like people fall into path, paths and, and it's okay to have a dream and an ambition, but it's not the be all and end all if you don't. I think sometimes it's more about acquiring skills along the way. Yeah. I was actually going to ask you um, about your decision between WAPA and UQ because I read in an interview you gave an answer that you sort of looked around the room in grade 12 and realised that you weren't, you know, the best dancer in the room and so you thought it would be better to go down the physiotherapy path. That is like a very mature and very, you know, realistic and level-headed decision have you always been like that? Like that's not a normal sort of, you know, you know that's not normal for that age group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, oh, you know, yeah, I think I have. I think I have always sort of, I think I have. Although, you know, I have to say like my parents, um, 
my parents are both school teachers and know nothing about ballet. And my dad, my dad actually um, was an older dad from a different generation. And I think he was always, you know, quietly supportive, but a little bit skeptical of my choice. Um, happy that I could, you know, move to Brisbane and and be at a at a really good school. Like obviously, um, you know, have other 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 students pushing academically around me that maybe I didn't have as much in Lismore. Not to say that that I didn't have any sort of push or drive academically, but I think um, you know we always had very frank discussions about it, and I think they were always very realistic with me, and I think that you know I probably assessed things and thought yeah no you know what they're right but you know you do sort of you do look around the room and I think teen, I think sometimes people underestimate how insightful you know teenagers are like when you're looking around the room you do compare yourself to other people um, and I suppose you know upon that was a layer of me not being very mentally well so um, which is I guess, yeah, look, you know, uh, I was struggling with an eating disorder at the time and I was realising the environment I was in wasn't making me very happy. So then you kind of think, well, what can I do to to fix that? And you go, well, you know what, maybe keeping keeping up with the ballet at this point in my life and trying to push for that goal is actually setting me back. Um, and and even if I were to push, like my my health is going to suffer. So you know, having those conversations with my parents who are always very realistic. So it hasn't always just been my own, <laughs> my own thoughts, but, you know, I know at the time it was a really difficult decision to make. Um, and it, it sort of still upsets me a little bit to think about it now, but I mean, like in hindsight, I don't regret the decision that I made and I know that it was, it was the right one for me. So yeah, I guess, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for being so honest and um, and it's really nice to hear that you have just the most amazing supportive parents. I find that I just I just love hearing good parenting stories and you know because there's obviously so many bad parenting stories in the dance world and dance parents get a bit of a bad rap sometimes and I think most of them have their, you know you know their hearts in the right place and um, and sometimes have to have some very difficult conversations with their children and so it's you're very lucky to have such great parents <laughs> thanks John and Trace yeah <laughs> yeah I, uh, I um so before I make you cry <laughs> or before we, oh, no, before no, we touch on all I talk about I do talk yeah. about this you know yeah. a, a lot and and um yeah I think um it's important to have these conversations you know um yeah definitely because and and to destigmatize the fact that this is something that dancers struggle with. I mean, we all sort of dance around it a little bit like, oh, we're not going to talk about that, you know. But I think it's um it's 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 it's, it's so important <laughs> to acknowledge. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, it, it doesn't always have to be this way. And I just sort of reflect as well as a health professional, I think, gee, what sort of things could have been in place for me to have a better time, you know, living away from home and you know, training at an elite level for the first time in my life. Like, how do we make that easier for people? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. Maybe it was the lighting. Your eyes look a bit watery. My eyes get watery when I think yeah. about my parents because I just, I'm just in the same boat. I love them to death and they're great and they were always so realistic and so not a dance dance mum or dad. <laughs> so, no, it's great. Mm. But um, I have a very uh, random one. So, Mm. One of your first jobs out of uni was the Qantas baggage handler physio. So cool. <laughs> Didn't know that that was a thing. I mean, it's probably not now with all the uh, the travel restrictions and whatnot. Um, I'm sure they don't have money to throw around for physios for the baggage handlers. But just give me a little summary of that. <laughs> I found that fascinating. Mm. Yeah, look, so... I was working in a private practice and I was doing a lot of dance assessments because the private practice was situated within a ballet school or a dance school. Um, so I thought, beaut, first job out of uni working with dancers. Um, but the, I guess the owner of that clinic was trying to focus her energy on developing Pilates courses, which was awesome. Really, really cool. Um, I got to help with those courses. I got to mark books, like work booklets and check people off for their certification. But I thought, oh, I'm not really developing my skills um, as a musculoskeletal physio. And that's really what I want to do. Um, so I kind of looked around for a few other jobs and I just saw this one pop up and I was living really close to the airport at the time. Um, and I thought, oh, 
just apply and see what happens. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I got to work alongside a really lovely uh, physio who I'm still really good friends with now. She taught me a lot um, and it was a really eye-opening experience. Um, it's almost like um, in a cartoon where you see something kind of like a, um, something that's really rosy and shiny on the outside, like the airport, you know, you get to the airport and you think, oh, travel and lights and, you know, um, fancy restaurants and like bars and like Mimco and all this kind of stuff. And then, um, but then behind the scenes, there's these, literally there's conveyor belts with bags and there's people in high vis and they're driving around, you know, in, in little vans out on the, on the tarmac and they've got seven minutes to clean a plane. I'm sure they take a lot longer now to clean a plane now that it's COVID. Um, and there are certain rules about their manual handling and there's these like vi really vibrant, like fun personalities. Um, you know, these guys that have been working at Brisbane airport for their whole careers. And it's really interesting. Like one of them once said, oh, I put six, I, I loaded 600 bags onto planes today. Like, and that's 600 by maximum 23 kilo domestic limit, right? On a suitcase. Can you imagine lifting 23 kilos onto a plane 600 times? So that's why they need physio. And you just um, don't think about it. Like, I'm not no. going to be able to look at baggage handlers if I ever get to see one in the near future. Um, <laughs> I'm never going to look at them the same again. I'm going to think, Louise may have worked on that, you know, that guy and his physio. <laughs> yes. Yeah, sometimes I look out the window and I go, oh, who's that? Is that Davo? Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember Davo. wonder if he remembers me. Um, I mean, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a very short stint in my career, I have to say, but it was um, a really good experience. Super interesting. And also, in, yeah, engaging with a bigger team. Because they did have the, the like, um, their managers and their managers' managers and the work health and safety. And to be perfectly honest, any organisation, even a ballet company, is similar to that. You know, you'll have the dancers, the artistic staff, um, the business executives, the artistic director. So it's all about um, communicating well with those different stakeholders. And I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it was a great experience. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring it up is because I love highlighting really random events in people's lives that that really, you know, can contribute to the skills that they have today because sometimes it can look like, oh, you know, Louise was at QDSE, she did uni, and then she went straight into working at Queensland Ballet. And I love letting people know that, <laughs> no, like, you know, you pick up different skills along the way, like doing all sorts of odd mm. jobs. And, and also, you know, when I have students who perhaps want to do, you know, physiotherapy and then they don't land their, they want to specialise in perhaps dance, but they don't land that dream job on the first go, it's like, well, you just, you've got your own sort of journey to go on and just take what comes and work towards it and you'll get there. But so now like leading into um, what exactly does your job now at QB entail and what I guess expectations when you work with the company versus the academy? Mm. Yeah, so at the moment um, I've, I'm doing lots of different things. <laughs> um, so... Uh, I do work at Queensland Ballet and I work with the, the senior program or the upper levels, um, as they're called now, a little bit with the lower levels. We do a little bit of screening with them, but not as much just yet. Maybe in the future, we don't really know. Um, and also the pre-professional students. And this year, particularly, um, I actually am not working with the company as much. I might cover an occasional day here or there. Uh, so up until this point, so from 2015 right through to 2020, I was working with the company and the academy and balancing the two. Um, but it's gotten to the point now where there are actually almost 150 dancers, if we include um, the pre-professionals, the upper level, so level one, two and three, um, and all of the company dancers. So uh, keeping my head around 150 dancers rehab pathways um, wow. and my own patients in, because I have my own business as well, um, and my study. <laughs> so I've just, I'm just tidying, tying the, the bow and, and putting, putting the, the um, finishing touches on a, on a master's degree and just starting a PhD. So I had a lot of balls in the air and I just sort of thought, you know what, um, like we had, there were, two, there were already two really wonderful physios working with the company and um, and I thought, you know, I think maybe it might be better if I just go and focus on the academy and really focus on doing a, a good job there. So I don't really work with the company this year, but um, 
my job with the academy will usually be quite an early start in the morning. So uh, they start their training um, at eight o'clock in the morning. So I'll arrive at 7.30 and usually try to see somebody before class starts. During class, I might take the, um, the rehabbers. So anybody who's not participating in class at that point in time, we usually do some alternative conditioning with them. Um, we've got really great Pilates facilities and, um, and a, a great gym so I'll use that time with those dancers who can't participate. So they're engaged some, uh, somewhat at you know, a time that, so they're not missing out on things, something they, ca they can participate in. Um, and I'll see those dancers through the morning and then I'll um, jump in my car or more recently jump on my bike <laughs> and ride over to, um, to Beasley Street in West End and spend the afternoon working with the pre-professionals and Sometimes I'll have um, a body conditioning class sort of dotted in there um, for our guest associate program or a meeting with um, other physios from, um, you know, other sports or um, like an in-service with um, a podiatrist or something like that. So every few weeks there's something different that kind of keeps, keeps, it, um, keeps it fresh. Um, yeah, so basically uh, a lot of a lot of communicating and, and administrative time too. So you know, if our dancers need to see um, sports doctors or um, uh, you know, coordinating their rehab, so having meetings about the rehabilitation pathways of each student. So we get together with the teachers as well and the um, the directors of the program and make sure that so, sort of everyone's across what's going on with the student. And we also have a wellbeing coordinator as well. Um, so from time to time. Um, you know, just checking in with certain students and making sure that they're they're going okay. Because um, yeah, a lot of um, our students live away from home as well, so just having those support networks in place is really important. I think. Yeah, you are one busy so lady. <laughs> <laughs> I'm exhausted just listening to you. <laughs> it's that's it's a big job. It's a big job, and I think sometimes people would sort of have this uh, visual that a physio just sort of heads into their clinic stays in that one room and just sees patients, you know, coming in and out. Um, and I mean, your life is not like that at all. You're riding on your bike <laughs> between clients. <laughs> no, it's awesome. Yeah, look, yeah. And I think there is a bit of that. There is a, a certain element to that, certainly. Like, and I do have clinic days where it is, it's just, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of feet, a lot of feet. So if you're not good with feet, not a good career path to choose, but yeah, I mean, and then there are days that, that get, you know, really mixed up. And during lockdowns, as, as I was saying before we started, um, you know, even running some special conditioning classes to make sure our dancers transition well back into the studio once lockdown finishes and all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, I also so actually, I also teach some safe dance practice lessons that are more theoretically, um, theoretically based for the um, upper levels as well. So a little bit of anatomy, a little bit of... Um, you know, uh, recovery sort of strategies and lots of different things all mixed in. Yeah. Love it. We had, um, we had a chat in our correspondence before um, when we were organizing our interview today and we were having a chat about the Olympics and being really fascinated by the behind the scenes. What, um, what can we learn here from athletes that we can bring into the ballet studio? Because let's face mm. it, dancers are athletes, but we may not get the funding. <laughs> so what can we learn yeah. from these athletes? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, look. Um, oh, what I mean, it is such a, a fine line, isn't it? You know, it's it's an art, but it's um, you know, it's it's a sport. It's it's you know, and and I think when we look at um Sports that are, are similar to ballet, like artistic swimming or um, gymnastics and figure skating, um, you know, ultimately they have a really similar goal. Um, they train very differently and obviously, you know, um, the demands for them performance-wise are probably a little bit different um, to ballerinas, but we can definitely borrow um you know, the, the science of looking after your body should sort of be a bit, you know, it, it shouldn't matter what sport you play. There are some really basic principles that um, that we can all be mindful of, I think, when we're thinking about caring for your body as someone who exercises a lot. Um, and I think um, one of the things that's really challenging for ballet is, 
adapting, you know, the scientific principles of load periodization. So that means having peaks and troughs or like highs and lows in your training um, through the year so that you're not sort of just, you know, um, pushing, pushing, pushing on this linear line, you know, um, because that's not how, how bodies respond. You know, we need time to rest and regenerate and, and recuperate and, you know, we need time to rehabilitate properly if we get injured and things like that. So I think one of my, my big interests or like one of the challenges in my mind is, um, you know, how do, we, how do we reach a middle ground between sport and art and how do we help, um, you know, dance teachers and dancers um, and dance families, you know, um, prioritise um, periodization and, and know when to push um, to achieve a goal and when to hold back. And I think, um, you know, it's an, it's an inexact science and we don't know very much about, um, about that. So um, not to say that there aren't scientists in the world who are researching that. Um, I think one of the, the biggest keys to unlocking that or having more information is understanding what, what a dancer's load workload actually looks like. So what is a typical dance workload? Like we don't even really know that yet. So it might be different in different companies and how do we measure that? Um, and how do we, um, you know, how do we know that we're measuring the right things? You know, even that is such an, an interesting conversation. And before I was talking to you, Georgia, I was talking to another researcher from a different university in Australia about these very things, you know, um, because it's such a big research challenge um, in, in our field at the moment is, is, is that kind of working out how, how to monitor training load. So if I'm a marathon runner, like I'll put on, put on a, um, like a, a, a GPS watch, you know, and, and press go and I go for my run and it tells me how far I went. It tells me how fast I went. If I have the technology, it'll tell me what my heart rate was, um, how many steps I took per minute. So my cadence, it'll tell me um, how long it took my heart rate to recover. It'll tell me um, whether I've reached a PB. So we have all of this technology at our fingertips that we can use in other sports, but we can't really use that um, in the dance world yet. Like we can't, we can't put on a, on a Fitbit, you know, and dance a ballet because it's, you know, where, where the blue, you know, <laughs> where bluebird, bluebird doesn't wear a Fitbit, you know? <laughs> yes. And I think, um, that's that's probably yeah one of the one of the challenges that we face also you can't put a gps watch on and dance in the studio because it just shows no. you going around and around in circles yeah exactly <laughs> it's so it's so funny i have this very fancy garmin watch uh that i bought before a big uh hiking trip and i started wearing it in the studio and it kept telling me to like it would buzz me and tell me to get up and move and i'm like i've just spent six hours teaching like <laughs> mm -hmm. i've been i've been non-stop moving and it's like oh, you know, you haven't hit your steps for the day. And I'm looking at my watch going, mm. what? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> it mm. just doesn't. Yeah. The wearables, as great as they are, are just not made for what we do as dance teachers or dancers. So it's not really the answer, is it? <laughs> no, no. Or um, the GPS one, the GPS wearables aren't the answer. So there are some other um, uh, wearables technology we that we can use um but they're just uh much more expensive and less readily available they're not really on the public market yet and having um a computer program so obviously with with a fit watch or a you know even an apple watch or something like that you have the the app where you can visualize all of that data at the moment the ones we can use they feed into like a real-time graph and it literally then leaves you with three hours of a big graph just three hours of a graph. And so you need like a sports science degree to sit down and analyze that graph <laughs> to work out what you were actually doing. Like, what does that mean? I don't know. Let's look at the three coordinates and analyze it. So it's a big, it's a bit of a challenge. So I think one of the things that I'd like to see in the future is, um, is better load monitoring, I think, um, of, of dancers and, and working out, you know, um, how we then use that information to build the light and shade so that we recover better. And the other things I think, I know I've listened to one of your previous podcasts about, um, or so, several of them about nutrition and how we can sort of borrow from sports science and, and, um, and fuel our bodies better to dance, you know, and I think it, it, it's, um, it's such a, a difficult uh, recipe in terms of, pardon the pun, difficult recipe when we're thinking about fueling dancers because, you know, um, 
there are often dancers do so many classes back to back and you know there's there's a certain element of you know feeling comfortable um fueling as well like having having a really big full full stomach when you're trying to do grand allegro it's not much fun you know so there's lots of different um considerations that i think mm. we need to make um and even um you know the the thought of having a rest day for some of my um my patients you know do you, do you give yourself a rest day? You know, that's one of the questions I often ask and and I often get a lot of sort of blank sort of, oh, should, should I be having a rest day? Like, oh, what's a rest day? You know, oh, you mean on Sunday how I, I go and I do Pilates and I go for a walk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 that's not a rest day. No, that's day. not a rest day. <laughs> <laughs> a rest day is a that's not bake really some resting. cookies and... <laughs> bake some cookies, watch yeah. some Netflix and maybe go for a walk with the dog. That's a rest day. <laughs> yeah. Yep. yeah. It's, um, it's, and it's funny it's, though. I, uh, I think um, it's also just, and one of the reasons why I get people like yourself and like the episode with Dr. Stephanie and Dr. Nikki um, in regards to sharing the message and spreading the message that a rest day will actually improve your dancing and improve your technique mm. because I think that's the key to getting pre-professional mm. and professional dancers and dance teachers to to um mm. to schedule a rest day is that you will actually be better if you do so so making them believe mm. that <laughs> absolutely and I think you know it's something that takes a long time you don't often get instant gratification that you've had a rest day you probably feel a bit icky having had a rest day you know but until you do it for a few months you're not going to really know how it might benefit you yeah um yeah absolutely um I I wanted to ask you about um your special interest area so your special interest Mm. area being bone health um where are you at there with your research and what's going through your brain when Mm. I when I say bone health at the moment Uh, yeah where am I at with bone health look I think, um, you know how that saying how they sort of, the more, the more you, the more you research something or the more that you, you want to find out about it, the real, the more you realize how much you don't know. Yeah. The and more so you learn the meal, I, the more you realize you don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yep. exactly. Yeah. So I think one thing, you know, the things that we, that we do know is that there are certain risk factors that contribute to bone stress injuries in dancers and those things I think are probably um, training load because this is not it, it's not hard science and that's something that I think we need to be have more concrete information about. So training load, so um, how many hours, how intense, um, you know, um, definitely diet and nutrition. Um, I think training age might have something to do with it too. Um, whether or not you've done lots of um, bone loading exercise as a younger person versus now. Um, how old you are when you start your full-time training and how much of a lead into that you get. Um, uh, what are your thoughts there's about... There's probably an, an element of genetics. <laughs> like there's so many things, so many things, and we don't really know, um, you know, which which things are uh, yeah. are the, the, the biggest contributors, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> what I was going to say, what are your thoughts about full-time training and age? And I think this is another another thing that we don't know anything about really I mean <laughs> we do I mean I guess I think it's not so much that um that there's a one-size-fits-all answer to this I think it's a very individual thing and I think you know if a dancer is considering starting full-time training they really need to sit down with with a health professional and with the teacher that's going to be taking them through that full-time training and they need to understand everything that's on the table. And I'm probably a key example um, of someone who probably didn't progress to full-time training in a very um, sensible way. So I think I probably only danced for seven or eight hours a week the year before I moved to Brisbane and then started dancing 27 hours a week. To me as a physio, now I, I would not be advising that I do that. I'd say, no, Louise, like, you need to be fleshing out your training. And even if you can't make more than eight ballet classes a week, you need to be doing something else. So you need to be um, doing some Pilates or going for a run or in swim squat or something, like something physical. Um, And I think, um, you know, everybody grows at different times as well. So 
you know, if you start full-time training, but you haven't yet been through your major growth spurt, you have to sort of have that conversation with your teachers and they have to realize that that is it's imminent. Like it's going to happen. You're going to grow. So if you try and really ramp up your training at the same time as you're having that big growth spurt, you know, it's probably going to mean that you'll, you know, not, not sort of get through that too well. You know, um, it might be that you get an injury or it might be that, that um, you know, that you're not, you're not making progressions in the way that the teacher might expect. Like just because you start training for 20 hours a week doesn't mean that you're going to make these rapid improvements if your body is also trying to grow five centimetres at the same time. So I think, um, you, and, and again, if you start full-time training and you're not fueling for full-time training, again, like you you just put yourself at risk. So it's, it's a very individual um it should be an individual um, consultation. And I think the idea of full-time ballet training, is so it's so romantic in, in the mm. young minds of, of so many dancers, but when the reality of it hits and, and you do get injured or you, you know, get run down or there's some kind of issue, I think there's not, you know, and I say this because there are, well, I mean, there, there are a lot of places to turn to for information, but it's almost like it needs to happen before you start that journey. Yeah. Yeah. I've thought for a long time now that perhaps before students audition for, you know, uh, full-time programs is, is one of the questions, correct me if I'm wrong, should maybe be, you know, have they gone through puberty yet? Because that's a big one because they can Mm. be selected for full-time training and then go through puberty and they've completely changed mind and body wise and can get left behind. Um, I find that that's a big one. <laughs> so, yeah, it's about mm. as personal, I think, as um, as point shoes, <laughs> which we're going mm. to get into. Oh, yeah. The decision yeah, to start full-time yeah. training is as individual and as personal as, as you know, starting your pre-point journey. So let's oh, have yeah. a chat, let's have which a chat also about that. Which coincidentally <laughs> usually happens right before yes. puberty too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's it's like yeah. a young dancer just goes through, you know, a, a serious young dancer that's taking their training incredibly seriously and wants to go somewhere with it mm. just goes through so much, so much in sh- such mm. a short period of time. Um, I was mm. going to ask you, pre-point assessments. So mm. let's start with the basics. What is a physiotherapist? looking for when you go for a pre-point assessment and I do have to say to Louise that I have lots of adult ballerinas that listen to the podcast and I you're probably used have have you had any adults come in for pre-point assessments before yeah yeah absolutely um and you know I've had actually quite um you know older I'm I'm saying um you know uh as as I think the correct term is nonagenarian, so somebody who's in their sixties and seventies um, come for a pre-point assessment before, and it's interesting because the advice I give is not that different. Um, you know, in terms of yeah. bone health, for somebody who's in their sixties and seventies and may have osteoporosis and they're about to put a point shoe on for the first time in their lives ever, um, you know, are they strong enough? are they do they have good balance you know these are all the same questions that I'd ask someone who's 12 or 13 um someone who's in their um 60s or 70s might um maybe have a few other you know pre-existing medical conditions that they've you know picked up as souvenirs along the way through life as well but sometimes (laughs) not um you know and 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 also just sort of what are their goals you know what are their goals with point work that's something that i always ask you know everyone that i assess you know do you do you want to take this seriously you know is it something that you're considering as a career um versus are you just doing it because you want to progress through the levels or um you know you've got a great social circle or you know and and that's fair enough too like it's there's it's probably a bit heartbreaking if you know, your whole social circle progresses to point work and you're kind of left behind and then you can't do that class with them because you don't have point shoes. So, of course, I understand that, you know, and it's and it's very difficult for an 11 or 12-year-old sometimes to say that they want to be a professional ballerina. And sometimes it's that for the first conversation they've ever had about it with their parents is in my consultation. They'll, you know, they'll kind of look at mum nervously and then they'll look at me and they'll look at mum and they'll go, yeah, I want to be a ballerina. And then mums go, oh, do you? Oh, oh, okay, righto, whatever, you know. <laughs> Probably no one's ever asked them before. That's the thing, yeah. yeah. Whereas someone who's, who's a bit older, you know, um, probably has just always admired 
admired being on point and point work and and just wants to be part of the magic really you know and that's fine mm. yeah as long as it's yeah. safe mm. as a as a putting my ballet teacher hat on I always mm. send my students um off to whether they're adults or children for a pre-point assessment um I find mm. actually the adults sometimes are the worst at, at going and getting one um because they They've got the money and they've got the car to drive and just go get their point shoes. <laughs> um, mm. And so I always say, you're an adult, you can do whatever you want, you're a big girl, but my recommendation is that you go and have a pre-point assessment and go through the exact same process that my younger students go through. Um, and it's just really interesting watching the difference between the adults and the students. But as a ballet teacher, I do find it incredibly difficult and really heartbreaking sometimes when younger students especially don't have the green light for point work yet and working out ways to sort of still include them in class and still include them in point mm. class and give them an extra little you're doing great and a little pat on the back you know as they're watching all their peers go up on point are there and like I know that sometimes people don't want to hear this are there some students that just not do point and what are usually the reasons? Yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, I don't like to say that there's, you know, there's only one or two things that are the most important in an assessment because that's not the truth, actually. Like I, there are so many things, honestly, that go through the back of my mind about a student, you know, because at the end of the day, I really want the best for them. And it's not like I don't want them to do point. Like I love doing point. So, of course, I want other people to share in that dream, you know. Um you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to be like mean or hard or anything like that. When You're I, when so I say mean, Louise, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, sometimes, you know, I never yeah. know what's going through this 11 year old's mind. Like they might look at me like I'm the, the nastiest witch. Like maybe I haven't had my coffee yet or something in there. <laughs> and you she know why us, yeah. And you know why us ballet teachers send the kids off to you guys for pre-point assessments so that it's out of our yeah. hands. <laughs> so that mm, we're not the yeah. baddie. You you're the baddie. You told her that she's not allowed. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. interrupted you, but no, but yeah. no, no, no. It's that's totally fair <laughs> to mention. I think it's fine. I don't mind being that person at all. Um, but I think generally <laughs> if somebody can't point their feet, you know, um, so I look at the angle of plantar flexion basically. So I have a special tool called the goniometer and um, it's which is a, a joint angle measurer for, for those playing at home. Um, it looks like a ruler, but it's got a big protractor stuck on the end of it and then another ruler coming off the other side. And I hold that up to the dancer's ankle and measure the, the degrees of plantar flexion. So through the outside of the leg, so the outside shin, which is the fibula, and down through um, the third metatarsal. Because what we want to make sure is when you're standing on point, you can stand on point and balance there. Um, and if you can't quite point your foot to 180 degrees, that's really hard to do. And then it means that you end up compensating for not having that range of movement. So you end up with things like posterior ankle impingement, bone stress injuries, just not plain, not being able to do things that you need to do to, to get a good mark in the exam in the first instance. So, you know, I'll also sort of think, okay, so how many degrees are they off? You know, if it's 177, I'm probably more likely to say yes than if it's 160. Um, and I'll try and work with that dancer, you know, to improve the way that they point their feet because sometimes that makes a big difference um, and, and be thinking about that. So using foot intrinsic muscles and working on calf strength and we throw everything we can at it. And, and often that does really help. To, um, and then sometimes it doesn't because sometimes the, the the way that the bones are structured in somebody's ankle, it's just not going to physically work. And and that's really sad. But, you know, like I can't then say, you know, yes, you're safe to start point because it probably realistically is unsafe. Um, so, you know, and having said that, I can't stop somebody from going, as you said, I, you know, after that, they might still drive down to the, the ballet shop and buy a pair of point shoes. But at least I've discuss the risks um, associated with them starting point before they're ready. Um, and the other, I mean, everything else I think, you know, um, can be can be worked on. I really do think, you know, um, and I'd much rather give dancers the tools to work on that. Um, yeah, and, and I think, you know, there are certain strengths and technical elements, you know, that, that I can suggest people work on. And I think, I think that 
you know, with, with practice and, and real practice, like really making sure you're doing things multiple times a week. Um, you know, and I think I see a lot of dancers maybe two or three times and it's very obvious that they haven't had the chance to do the exercises. And, and I sort of think, well, I, you know, I still can't say yes because I can't say that you've met my, my sort of requirements or my prerequisites, I suppose. Um, yeah. And I think it's, it is, it's, it's a, it is a bit, you know, I'm, and uh, this is coming from someone who doesn't have very good feet too. So like I am on your team. <laughs> I don't have banana feet. Like I've, <laughs> I've had to work for every degree I've got. Um, and I think, you know, it is, it is possible to, to make improvements, but it often takes a lot longer than, than we think it's going to take. Yeah. 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 And, and the other yeah. side of that is that you can have really beautiful, flexible feet, but they're not strong mm. enough. And so on the other side of the coin, it I mean, obviously probably a little bit easier to strengthen rather than to, mm. is it easier to strengthen a good foot than it is to improve a, a worse off foot in your opinion? Uh, <laughs> I really don't, I really couldn't Depends. say either way. It does depend. Mm. I think it depends. And I think, um, I think it's probably, it's probably just as hard, especially considering, as we said before, that a lot of those girls are like 11 or 12 years old and they're going through a big growth spurt. And if you're hypermobile and you've got really mobile feet, um, or even if you're, if you're not, if you're more of a stiffer body type, you know, and you're growing at the same time, it's, it's a really difficult time in life, you know, to be trying to push um, yeah. and, and achieve this, this magical skill. It's really hard. It is really, really hard, you know, yeah. and everyone who even attempts it should be congratulated because I know a lot of people who probably go, oh, I don't know why you would ever want to do that. <laughs> Definitely. It's so like, yeah. I always, I always say, I always talk about point shoes being a privilege because I find um, from the teacher's perspective that when I send students to go get pre-point assessment, one of the biggest things I see is that they're really diligent, especially if they get knocked back that first or second time and get a set of exercises they have to work on. And they're really diligent. But then once they get the tick of approval, they stop doing the exercises. And I'm like, mm. you can't stop. Like you have to keep doing those exercises to maintain that strength or that flexibility or whatever you know side of it is or both. Um, whilst even though you've got the pair of shiny new point shoes you still got to keep doing it <laughs> do you have any tips that you give oh, your yeah. clients about sort of maintaining that schedule and that consistency mm. yeah often I relate it back to my work um with the professional dancers because at the end of the day um you know it's you, you when you're a professional dancer you don't just walk into work and start rehearsing sleeping beauty and go home I mean you still have class and you still get corrections in class and you still have Pilates classes where you work on those strength and conditioning um, elements and you still get injured and you have to work again back from a base sometimes, you know, and you still have a strength and conditioning coach who's pushing you, you know, to get stronger so you can jump higher. And there's still more challenging roles. Like the, it's, it's, it's a never ending um, pursuit of excellence ballet. It really is like, so it doesn't matter what level you're at, like you can never be complacent, you know, and I think that's, um, you know, there's a difference between saying you can never be complacent and you have to work yourself 100% all the time to you can work smart and hard um, or, you know, you can work smarter rather than harder, <laughs> um, but you always have to keep keep pushing. And I think that's... Um, you know, I always, yeah, relate it back to the experiences I have with the professional dancers because I think uh, I think it's very difficult to imagine that behind the scenes they do all of this conditioning work and they have this medical team and a gym and Pilates reformers and they go for jogs and swims and cycles, you know. Um, we only ever see what's on the stage, you know, whereas if it were a football team, of course, you know, you see them warming up, like there's yeah. news reports and every night on the news you see one one football team warming up in the background of the of the news report or getting every a massage. night so yep <laughs> yeah or you know they're sitting in their team huddle and they've you know everything's they you know got strapping tape hanging off an elbow and they're sipping on their Gatorade and you go yeah yeah that's normal you know and there's someone there in high vis massaging out someone's hamstring like oh yeah yeah that makes sense so you true. never see that part it's of so ballet true. ever but it, it happens like it's my everyday yeah 
Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Now that I think about it, it's like, no, we've got to show all that. <laughs> That's why I really love when the uh, companies always do um, the uh, class on the stage before the performance so that everyone can see them do class and participate in that. And it's like, wow, like a normal person in that kind of class, you know, attempting before a whole performance would be exhausted before the performance started and it's like no that's what they do <laughs> they get it done mm. yeah oh yeah and yeah I mean effectively that is their warm-up like if and if you watch yeah. yeah sporting teams warm up like that too absolutely absolutely um yeah so I I think that is actually a great thing um you know and it and it, it sort of lets you see the dancer as a person before they're a character on stage too that's very important to remember I love that Love that. I, um, I've been having this conversation a lot lately and I especially think if, you know, you are going down the point path that ballet does become a lifestyle. It really does. It's something very consuming, obviously, you know, and especially here at Balance Ballerines, it's all about balancing that out with normal mm. life. But, but it is a lifestyle, especially if you want to do points. So you have to, you know, really commit to it. But if it is a lifestyle... How important mm. is it that we sort of, you know, look at the dancer as a whole person, train holistically and sort of connect dancers with um, health professionals like yourself? <laughs> yeah, so I think that's something else that we can think about, um, you know, particularly because the Olympics are on at the moment. And we've seen, you know, Simone Biles, who is an aesthetic athlete, you know, she's a gymnast and and the things she's attempting are super dangerous, you know, like, if you wanted to do that in a ballet performance, you'd need to have stunt training. You need to have it signed off with work health and safety. Like the things that these guys are doing are just exceptional. And, 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 you know, Naomi Osaka and these athletes that have shown themselves to be, um, you know, quite vulnerable, but that, but in a way it's really what they're doing is they're normalizing um, the, the human sort of element that, that comes with this, you know, um, you know, and, and yeah, of course you could, you could have a, a robots Olympics and you could watch robots at the Olympics and, but it just wouldn't be the same. And the race is run and the race is over, but the most engaging part is the interview with that person and watching them all congratulate each other at the end and look and reading about the story, you know, oh, this person was pacing this person and, and they got them through to the end, even though he didn't win, he was dead last, but he, you know, pushed his mate to the end and like, yeah, I feel like I'm getting very off track here. But, you know, all of these athletes have psychologists and they all have sports doctors. They all have dietitians. They all have um, well-being coordinators. Um, they all have um, families, friends. They all have um, medical assessments. <laughs> exactly. And they probably are also, because with when you, I think in some sports, the time demands for training are not as intense as ballet too. But they also are probably studying, um, you know, business and, and psychology. And actually, if you have a look, so um, Emma, Emma McKeon, I think, or McCohen, I'm going to pronounce, mispronounce her name, and she's won all these Olympic medals, and I feel so ignorant right now. But she's, um, you know, she's You're doing better than me. In, I have no idea. <laughs> oh, she's, yeah, the, the Olympic swimmer who's just won all these medals. I think more than 11 plus, got, not gold medals, but over the, the course of her Olympic career. And she's enrolled at, 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 at the university on the Gold Coast and she's studying. Um, I just looked at this before we started talking to. She's studying um, a Bachelor of Public Health, you know, and I'm, oh, you know, so they, they're all sort of encouraged to really have this pathway for them because they're not going to be Olympians forever. Um, just as ballet dancers probably aren't going to be dancers forever. We can still be engaged in the industry, you know, um, but I think um, sort of building some pathways for our dancers, um, you know, to, to start exploring what might be next um, while they're still, you know, uh, pursuing the first dream. I think that's that's something else as well, you know, and that's that's part of creating those support net networks because even by going to a mainstream school or um, being enrolled in distance education and having a class that you engage with or going to a university and, and meeting your lecturers and your peers, like they're all life enriching experiences too and parts of being a, a balanced ballerina in a way. And there are dancers in, in the company I work with that um, that are enrolled in in university degrees and and you know of course they're excelling because they've got this drive that comes from pushing pushing to be um, a professional ballerina but they can take that and apply that in other facets of life and 
I think that's really incredible. Um, yeah, we shouldn't dancers let it go do to very waste, well. But, yeah, mm. dancers do very well yeah. and they sort of apply themselves or decide that they're going to do something. They really do it. They don't, they don't half-ass it. <laughs> Mm. but equally I think sometimes being okay with accepting help as well and recognizing it's okay to have a team behind you is um is the other thing yeah yeah so yeah I mean it it's you know it does become it becomes yeah it becomes a little bit um you know um like as you say it's part of the lifestyle really isn't it yeah and I and I think on that note too and and I guess sort of sometimes why dancers are especially good at whatever they set their mind to is that they're very um uh headstrong about just getting it done and doing it all on their own they are really bad asking for help and so one of the reasons why I love getting guests from all over the dance industry on the podcast is to really just highlight that you know it's really important to create a team around you that is there for you and it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to sort of um, put your hand up and also be like, I'm not okay. Can someone give me some guidance here? But also usually with athletes, like you said, they have this massive team around them. And I, I do love that we're starting to, to do the same with dancers and sort of build a team around them. So I hope it happens even quicker. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and 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 who who knows what the future might hold? But I think there's some good momentum now, and I think um, you yeah. know with the the pandemic as well. I think a lot of people are stopping, reassessing, and thinking, okay, when I don't have dance, what do I have? And that um, it's quite a confronting question, but I think it's leading a lot of uh, you know um, big names in our industry to to kind of um to to take a stand and be more courageous with them with the the change that they're pushing for which is really really positive I think um because yeah and I guess it's going back to those questions you know we don't actually know we don't really know how how much better ballet dancers could be as performers um until we until we try to give them that help really <laughs> you yeah. know they're pretty amazing now but imagine how amazing they could be if they had that support in place yeah definitely mm. imagine imagine in a few years time when we really have totally grasped this holistic approach to training I think we'll see some pretty spectacular things um but yes Louise I want to ask you as I ask all my guests what keeps you balanced <laughs> it keeps me balanced um Oh, oh, so I guess one of the things I never really pursued when I was at high school, probably because I didn't have time, <laughs> um, but I was able to explore a bit more as an adult um, is singing. So I enjoy singing. And I, I think found some YouTube clips of you singing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you, have, you have an amazing voice. Amazing. I was going to ask you. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, good. So definitely that. It's been a little bit, um, it's been very helpful for me to have some great uh, tuition. So my singing teacher's excellent and she's very anatomical, which I love. So I love that I'm, I'm using, like I'm learning about the body at the same time as I'm pursuing something I've loved since I was, you know, um, in, in kindy. I can remember singing and singing around at school and just thinking it was so fun. But I think, um, yeah, I am. Um, I also love running too, um, and I've dabbled in triathlons. Um, you know, lots, lots similar there. Quick costume changes, lots of lycra, <laughs> <laughs> lots of different pairs of shoes as well. Um, yeah, and um, yeah. So every morning, I'll usually start my day with a little bit of so a bit of weight training or some running or something, and it's it's a nice time for me to reflect on you know how is my own body feeling because I use my body a lot in my work and. And I think it's 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 really important to know that that I'm also doing myself a favor, you know, physical activity wise, and doing something positive for my health. Um, but yeah, singing and I and um, I've convinced my my partner to try some some Latin dance. So I started doing Latin dance lessons a few years ago, and I've tried to invite him along uh, to some Latin dance classes, and he's he's improving with every lesson. I'll 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 give him that. Um, <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm so we can perform. <laughs> I'm so jealous. But, no, I would uh, love to get my partner on board. I don't think he would do that at all. 
<laughs> you've, you've done well. You've done well. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, you, he might surprise you. Um, I think, Maybe. yeah, Latin dance is a, a whole other kind of, it's an, it's another community in itself and because it's got these really strong cultural ties and, and the whole um, male and female roles in Latin dance is really different um, as well. So I think it's, it's, it's actually, um, I think once actually men go and watch Latin dancing, they realise how, how the cultures that it comes from um, are so different to ours. And I think it's a really positive, positive thing. So, yeah. Mm. Very cool. Well, between mm. the singing and the dancing and the physiotherapy and the PhD, <laughs> I mean, you're one very busy lady, Louise. So I wanted to say thank you so much for um, being so generous with your time. And I think people are really going to enjoy our very well-rounded conversation today. So thank you. We covered a lot. We covered a lot. We did. I hope they that was follow. my goal. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having me, Georgia. It's a pleasure. And I hope we get to talk again soon. Thank you.